0: Here's an even bigger, broader takeaway: nothing is new. That's true. Nothing, too. <laughs> nothing is new. Things are not going faster. In fact, they're probably going slower than ever before in terms of change. Uh-huh. Everything that's happened now has happened before. In the Silicon Valley Bank, you look at that, you think that's an unusual thing. Has that ever happened before? Yes, it happened uh-huh. in the 1830s. Almost the exact same thing. Everything that has happened today, you can look back in history and find precedent for it, and that mm-hmm. matters. Guy named Mark Lynch. So Mark Lynch and a guy named Nick Adams built Wellington management up from like 80 million in capital in in assets under management. I don't know, something like 600 billion Mark retired in 2019. So you go to Mark's house outside of Philadelphia and you walk in. He's got this large room, this large, beautiful room. They call it the great room. What's in that room? It's a huge library. It's a humongous library. This is one of the most powerful and important people in the banking industry in the United States over the past 30 years. What does this guy spend his time doing? Reading, reading history. Like, does, does reading all that history, does that, does that translate into making, in, into your success as an investor? The answer to that is yes. Absolutely. So what you'll find is that you go around, around, you know, and people say history doesn't matter. Everything is different now. Th- these are clowns. People who say that don't know what they're talking about. The, the fact of the matter is the more history you know, the, the, the better you're able to respond to these things that happen in the market because nothing is new.
1: Well, I think the one thing in common that the past has with today, and I think Ben Graham, the famous value investor said that everything changes, but it's the humans that are running the show. And I'm paraphrasing what he said, but basically that's the idea. It was humans causing the panic back in the 1800s, and it's humans causing the panic today. And it will be humans that will cause the next panic in the next 50 years or 100 years. Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money, how to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question, what it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor, and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. Welcome, everyone. I'm so glad you're tuning into my podcast. For your convenience, the show is available on a multitude of platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google, Audible, and many more. If you want to keep up with all new episodes, and there are so many more in the queue, make sure you subscribe and please do share it with friends and family review it and rate it if you can. Every little gesture matters and I thank you for it. If you'd like to know more about me or if you're interested in getting in touch, simply Google my name and it will lead you straight to my website. There's a contact form there or check notes to this episode for links. I love hearing how you listen to my podcast on your walks, hikes, alone times, drives, trips and more. I trust that my guests and I are a wonderful company on those adventures. I also enjoy reading how some of you are rehearsing and answering some questions that I ask my guests. I love hearing that. If you're new to the show, please scroll down and check out all the amazing guests I've had over the last few months. If you are serious about investing, money, wisdom, wealth, and living a better life, you'll find plenty of episodes with some incredible ideas. For those who enjoy reading thoughtful pieces, I regularly write articles on Substack, which I'm sure you'd find insightful. Find me there and follow me as well. Finally, I'd like to mention my latest book, Crisis Investing. It's a collection of 100 essays that I penned for our clients during the tumultuous times of the global COVID pandemic. These essays are both timely and timeless, providing a unique perspective on navigating through crises. They were never meant to be published, but here they are available to you. Please find the book on Amazon. The book has already received considerable recognition and much love, ranking among the top releases on Amazon in its initial weeks. Thank you for your support and for being a part of my listener community. Now, without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. My guest today is John Maxfield. He studies and writes about banking, He spent two decades studying America's best banks, the history of banking, and interviewing bank leaders. He writes a newsletter about banks that has been called the best newsletter on banks. I personally know seasoned stock investors who told me they choose to never invest in banks because they don't understand them. We can't avoid banks in our lives though. We don't all have to be equity investors in banks, but most if not all of us have deposits with banks. There's a lot to learn and to understand about banks, and in the next hour, John is going to make this difficult topic a lot more relatable. John is a great student of history and comes from a family with a multi-generational history with bank ownership. I myself, I'm a very passionate student of history, and I'm an investment advisor to families with multi-generational fortunes. I was delighted to have John on the show. We talk about his upbringing, John shares the history of U.S. banking, seen through various eras. He tells us about the counterintuitive truths about banking. We talk about the origins of banking crisis. We also touch on the silly valley panic of 2023, as John likes to call it. John shares commandments for the banking industry and his own personal definition of success. Please help me welcome John Maxfield. Well, hello, John. Nice to see you. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of your writing. You write about banks, and I think these are some really difficult concepts, and you have a gift and a way to explain things that are really hard to follow, even for industry experts, in a way that's very easy to digest. So I thought we can sit down and talk about banks, both from a perspective of equity investors. We manage money for families at Seacard associates, but also as depositors. We all have money with all kinds of banks. And we've experienced some shocks in the system and bank runs. And as I mentioned to you, I even had some phone calls I got one of the weekends when the banks were failing about the safety of people's deposits at the banks that end up failing. So it's been a stressful time for anybody that has any exposure to banks. And we all do one way or the other. So that's the big topic for today. But before we talk about banks, I want to talk about you, John. I'm curious about your childhood upbringing, and i like to hear my guests share with me those early stories, if you indulge me, and how you think that time influenced your relationship with money and led you to a path of you know, a bank analyst. I'm very curious to hear more.
0: Yeah, so it's actually, it's a, it's a perfect time for, for this because I'm feeling a little nostalgic because my father just passed away. And so a lot of, a lot of what I do is a function of Kind of what I learned from my father, and his business, and all that kind of stuff, his investing and stuff. And so grew up in a small town in Wyoming, Torrington, Wyoming, about 4,500 people. My grandfather had a sale barn there for cattle, it was the largest sale barn for cattle west of Kansas City. My father was, if you would talk to kind of the people that you worked with, he was considered somewhat of a savant in the cattle market. He went to law school, graduated top of his class in law school. Was going to get an LLM at NYU, which LLM is a graduate law degree. But opportunity came up to buy a portfolio of businesses. He had made a bunch of money trading options in, in college and law school and, and buying and selling real estate in college and law school. So he was sitting on a bunch of cash. So he bought this portfolio of business and this businesses. And instead of going to get his LLM at NYU, uh, he just went ahead and, and, and kind of owed those businesses in, in his hometown of Torrington, Wyoming. He then, Made a bunch of money trading cattle for his dad's sale barn. He then started his own business, which was a cattle feeding business. We had three major feedlots and an archipelago, like kind of a, a group of farms and ranches kind of around these feedlots that, that that supported it. And what you find, he made a lot of money. He was a very successful business. We lar- ended up being the largest cow feeder in the United States. And one of the things that you realize when you're in agriculture is Two things. One, it's cyclical industry. Like all, like all industries are cyclical, but agriculture is particularly cyclical. The second thing is that in order to survive those cycles and to grow a business, you have to know your banker really well. And so another thing that my family has done for multiple generations, we've invested in, in banks for four generations, oh, public wow. banks and, but primarily private banks. And that kind of what makes up the, the predominant share of me and my wife's balance sheet is a, an investment in a, in a private bank. And, uh, and so when the financial crisis hit, I went to college, I went to law school, clerked for federal judge, did a whole bunch of stuff. Eventually, the financial crisis hit. I realized that I didn't have a good understanding of, of what caused banks to fail or really even the banking business model. And so I just started reading as many books about banking as, as I could. That one thing led to another. I got a job writing about banks. Then I was the editor-in-chief of a banking magazine. And now I do kind of a, I have a portfolio of activities that I do on my own that related to banking. But it really is kind of to your point, it's about demystifying what is otherwise a, a really complicated subject for a lot of people.
1: Well, I'm sorry to hear about your father and it sounds like he had been a, an incredible influence on your life and, and shaped you in many ways. So thank you for joining me today. I know it's, it's a special time, but I appreciate it. So talking more about banks, you have this series of articles that you called Magnum Opus on Banking. And you share a quote, I'll share a quote from it with you. By the end of the series, you will know more about banking than 95% of people who work in the industry. And I think it's true. So you talk about the, the four eras of US banking, and how banking is a lot like other businesses, but it's not, there are some peculiarities about this business. Can you walk us through the history of banking in the United States? And then why is it a different business than other businesses that we might be familiar with analyzing as analysts?
0: Okay, so so those are two different, those are two kind of big loaded questions. If I don't get to that yeah. second one, just remind we'll me back. and I'll, get, I'll, I'll come back to it. Okay, so let's talk about the history of banking. So so you know, whenever you want to kind of dominate or kind of like master subject matter, there are multiple mm-hmm. verticals that you have to understand. And one of those verticals in any subject matter is a history. Now, a lot of people think that I'm a historian. I'm actually not a historian. I've just spent two years really focused on that vertical because there's so much there. It just, it just takes a long time to, to kind of grasp that. And so when you think about history in, in a subject matter, the, the only way, if thinking one is, as long and rigid as banking, the only way that you can really grasp kind of this, the subject matter overall is to break it down into eras. And that's called, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, it's a process that historians call periodization. And so mm-hmm. what you do is you have to find out, okay, what, what are the things that causes one era to switch to another era, to switch to another era, to switch to another era. And a proper periodization, it'll be the same thing that causes these switches from one to another, to another, to another. And one of the things that I did over the past, I guess it's now 18 months, is that I went back through the history of banking and I went back through I started in 1790 which was the beginning of the United States as the George Washington's first inaugural address and I just read contemporary materials all the way through to today and the reason I did that is because I'd studied a bunch of subject matters before in my life I've kind of got subject matter subject matter subject matter subject matter and I was always able to reduce you know 6 months 8 months couple years I was able to reduce that subject matter down to a fundamental principle and then once you reduce it to your fundamental principle, you can kind of pack that away in your brain. And then forevermore, you can pull that out and remember all this stuff, recall all the stuff that you learned and unpack it. But I wasn't able to do that with banking and, and I couldn't figure out why. And so when through this process, this 18 month process, the whole purpose of that was both to figure out why I wasn't able to do that. And then if I was able to do that, then kind of like fix it and then kind of, kind of actually go through that actual process. And what I found was that the problem that, did, that didn't allow me to reduce it in the same way was that the scholars had broken down the periodization incorrectly. And so mm-hmm. what they had done is that they said, look, one era goes to the, the thing that switch, separates eras is, and this is my terminology, but it's the presence or absence of a central bank like authority. Mm-hmm. As they said, so you start with, so you go basically from 1790 until 1837. And that's the, the first bank, the first and second bank of the United States era. So those are our, our, our first kind of central banks. And then there's this period after Andrew Jackson doesn't renew, after he vetoes the charter, the renewal of the charter, of the second bank of the United States, that's called the free banking era. And that goes from 1837 until the civil war. So that's mm-hmm. like, basically like there's no rules. Basically everybody's going to do, anybody can start a bank and there's like basically no rules to running or starting a bank. Civil war starts. What happens in the civil war? The federal government of the, the so of the union government, so the the government that, Oversaw the 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 army of the North, so the Abraham Lincoln's government. They needed to find a way to finance the the the, the war, and so they did that by starting the could they passing the National Banking Acts. And so what the National Banking Acts did is they said like we're gonna we're gonna consolidate all these banks in the United States under national charters, get rid of all the state banks, use those national banks to sell bonds, and then those bonds would finance the war. So then Mm -hmm. that period goes from about 1863 until 1913. 1913 is when the Federal Reserve Act is passed, the Federal Reserve Act. Then according to the current periodization or kind of the conventional periodization, that covers everything until today. The problem is that when you look at the data, you break the data down. I spent thousands of hours collecting data that goes all the way back to the beginning, whether it's bank population, bank failures, bank creation, bank merger and acquisition, when you when you put these data sets together, and, and not very many people have put them together for the whole time, you know, going all the way back, and you stack those data sets on top of each other, and then you look at the periodization when those scholars broke those eras down, what you find is that there's no inflection point in the data. And so you say, like, well, 1913, it makes seems to make sense that you that Federal Reserve's birth starts this new era, but you look at the data and there's just no inflection point in the data. And you go mm-hmm. back all the way through time and it's just same. So you think like, well, if the, one error is switching to another error, doesn't cause an inflection point in the data. Is it actually a changing of, uh, is it actually a change of an error? Right. My belief is not. And so what I did yep. is I, one, once I realized that that was, that the periodization was off, I started back over again and then went back through reading contemporary materials back through. And then I found what the thing was that caused one change, one error to change from another era. Now, this sounds really academic, but you'll see in a second that it's actually incredibly critical to understanding this industry. And so what I found is that when you look at the data, what causes these big movements in the data are what I call novel liquidity flows. Now, novel mm-hmm. liquidity flows, are that's when a, a huge surge of liquidity comes into the system or goes out of the system. And, and there's two ways that that, that that can happen. Number one, it can come into the system from another system. So like from Europe, right. we had that in the late 1800s. So like in 1880, the average person in the United States had $4 on deposit. Now you adjust Mm -hmm. that for inflation and something like $27 today, but that's not very much. Mm -hmm. Then what you had is you had this huge flood of capital coming into the United States from Europe. Mm -hmm. Disposable income is born in the United States. People have all this money. They're putting all this money in these banks. The number of banks increases dramatically. And then you go into the Great Depression and in 1920s, Great Depression and that falls. But that to birth of disposable income is a huge influx of capital from Europe into the United States. And so that's a large novel equity research. So that starts, that starts an era. You then go forward and then you have a second, another era start in 19, in the early 1970s. And that starts with the oil crisis in 1973 when OPEC puts an oil embargo on the United States, totally changes the trading patterns in the entire world. Money floods out of the United States into the Euro dollar market. Euro dollars or dollars. Those dollars then flood back into the United States capital markets. Mm-hmm. And that's what causes the financial crisis. So you have 1973 to the financial crisis is another era. And what's what really matters now is then you say, okay, the financial crisis is the end of an era, or at least that we know that now. But at the time we didn't know that. So the question was, was after the financial crisis, you're like in 2010, 2011. You're saying, are we still in a former era or are we in a new era or are we in some sort of purgatory where we're between eras? And we're, it's kind of like, we don't really know Mm or TBD, right? But then when the coronavirus crisis hits, what happens? We have a huge flood of liquidity in the system and it comes through the second way that liquidity can come into the system. And that is like up through the ground like a geyser. And that's Mm -hmm. from money money creation from the Federal Reserve. And that's what happened. We had this huge flood flood of liquidity into the system from both fiscal policy and monetary policy, such Mm -hmm. a large surge that it actually starts a brand new era. And why does that matter? That matters because when you have an enormous amount of liquidity comes into the system, it knocks the entire system out of equilibrium. What happens when you knock the entire system out of equilibrium? You have crises. And so what did we see almost to what, there's about two years after that huge flood of liquidity. We saw the Silicon Valley crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley, all this money comes in. They don't know what to do with it. That bank fails. First Republic fails. Signature bank fails. And so you have all these banks fail. So, like that crisis was a function of this novel liquidity surge. And that is a function of trying to move back into equilibrium where the amount of money in the system is relatively equal to the actual demand for money that is in the system and so, and so that's why that matters but so if you break it all down you can just basically think about the whole history of banking like this you can break down to five piles of money okay and the readjustment to equilibrium back from those piles of money the first pile is when the the first the second bank in the United States when they come in in the early 1800s and they add all this credit that's a pile of money right second pile of money starts in the 1830s when those banks go away and all these state banks come and form because there's no rules and they're trying to, to make up for the lack of credit because the first and second banks in the United States are gone. So they come in and they create a huge pile of money. That's novel mm-hmm. liquidity surge that comes up through the ground because it's money creation. You then have the 18, then that goes all the way to basically the 1880s. The 1880s is when you have the novel liquidity surge from Europe. That's mm-hmm. a humongous pile of money. That pile of money we're re- readjusting back into equilibrium all the way back until the 1970s. 1970s. You have a huge pile of money from the euro dollars because of the change of trade patterns because of the the energy crisis. So that's a huge pile of money. And then your fifth pile of money is the coronavirus, the response to the coronavirus crisis. Everything in banking will be thought of as a function of one of those piles of money.
1: So if we pause for a second, I'm thinking about two two things. One, the U.S. banking system before the Fed and after the Fed, and maybe you can have some thoughts about beyond the Fed. And the second one is the gold standard. The U.S. had a very you know, effective gold standard all the way until early 1930s. And since then, not really. And since the 70s, not at all. And that had some sort of an influence on how liquidity can be quickly created and was not easily created in the era of the Great Depression, for example. Can you talk about those two, Fed and then the gold standard?
0: yeah so the gold standard is one of those things it's a it's a it's a fiction that people believe in, but it's actually never existed mm-hmm. so the so yeah we've ostensibly through time we've pegged the the amount of currency we that you know we've we've produced to the amount of gold that comes out of the ground but you see these crises when these crises happen? We always take the peg off. Always take the peg off. Always take the peg off. <laughs> 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873. The, the, you even you go back to the, the the Civil War. You go 1893. You go to the crises in the early 1900s. Panic of 1907. You have you know the Great Depression. You have the seven 70- we We've never stuck to it. We've never mm-hmm. stuck. It's, it's just it's a fiction that people are infatuated with because they are against this thing that. This four letter word called fiat currency, right? And so, whether you agree with the gold standard or don't agree with the gold standard, the fact of the matter is it's never worked. It's just, mm-hmm. it has never, ever, ever worked. And if in those periods of time when we were stuck, when we were on the gold standard, so when you abide by the gold standard, and then we had a crisis that caused us to go off the gold standard, but if you didn't go off the gold standard, I mean, it would, it would push the economy into such a deep depression. Now, like mm-hmm. you have to ask yourself, like, is it worth being in a in hor- horrible depression where people are literally starving to death just to mm-hmm. maintain some sort of like intellectual consistency with this, just this, this idea that has never worked? I, you know, it's like it, you know, it's, it's a nice thing to think about, but when you really go down and you dig into it, you realize it, it's just, it just, it just doesn't work. But it takes, I mean, that it takes hundreds of hours, thousands of hours of studying this stuff to really understand the dynamics of this stuff. And that's why it's like a lot of people who who believe this stuff, they 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 don't spend a lot of time actually digging into it, studying it. Like seriously studying the book. I mean, you see the books that are, you can see, I you know this is just a recording, but you you see the books behind me. I, I have an enormous see. library that like, I've, <laughs> I've studied this stuff going back hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and it's just one of those things that like, it's just better for people to like, to understand that you need more flexibility than gold standard provides, the Federal Reserve. Now, does that mean that when you have a fiat currency and the Federal Reserve is able to like re- increase the supply or decrease the supply, does that mean that that's a better situation? No, it doesn't. The fact of the matter is, you know what I mean? Like humans run the Federal Reserve. Humans are right. susceptible to error. The reason the Federal re- the reason the Great Depression was a Great Depression, as opposed to just one large depression recession or actually two back to back recessions, is because of the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. what they say, come in, they say, we're going to decrease the the money supply at the wrong time. And that causes this thing to just flood. This causes this this, this thing to to go from what was the typical recession into a great depression. And not only did they do that once, they did it twice because they did it not only in 1929 and 1930, but they also did it in 1937. When we were coming out of the great depression, they did it again and they pushed us back into the great depression. And you can actually look at the Great Depression and be like, well, the Great Depression, in large part, was a funk, was caused this World War II. And you look at the death of the World War II, so you think like, yeah, the Federal Reserve, like they, to say that we shouldn't be on the gold standard is not necessarily to say that the Federal Reserve is the answer, because the right. Federal Reserve is run by humans, and humans are are, are susceptible to failure, or to flaws, in making mistakes. So it, you know, it's just one of those, it's just one of those things where it's like nobody is right and nobody is wrong.
1: I mentioned to you before we started recording that I picked up a book One Up on Wall Street when I was a student and it set me on a course of becoming a professional investor. But there was another book on the shelf called Maestro Maestro about Alan Greenspan that you might know about that came out probably about the same time. And I I skimmed through that book and it was telling a story of one individual that somehow counts the train cars and knows what the interest rates should be and I grew up in in Poland and the first decade of my life was a centrally planned economy under communist rule. And we had central planners, individuals that somehow knew what kind of shoe you should wear and how many nails should be produced. And the whole system completely failed in an embarrassing way, as you can imagine. So here I was reading a book about this gentleman that's running an institution that I was not yet familiar with, the Federal Reserve, and somehow he's counting the train cars and knows what the interest rates should be. I put that book away. I walked away with the Peter Lynch book, One Up on Wall Street, and I'm glad I did. I never really understood why we all believe that one single individual or 10 of them or 20 of them doesn't really matter. Somehow know what the interest rates should be. The same way we can't have one individual that decides how much a Nike should, should sell for. The same way there should be a free market in interest rates. But maybe that's something I'll yet get to live and see one day. And I'm curious about your f- thoughts. Before we get into that, I'm curious about the concept of fractional reserve banking, because that's something that's elusive as an idea to a lot of people. Can you talk about that? H- how do the banks really work from that perspective?
0: Okay, so let me let me answer that in kind of a let me let me take a broader answer to that. So you think about, and you mentioned this at the beginning, that banking as a business is different than other businesses. Right. That's absolutely true. And I don't mean just like it's just different, like how superficially. I mean it's fundamentally different. It's like the way I describe it is that a bank is like the moon, and as a typical business is like the the planet Earth. So in a typical business, in order you're trying to get that thing going. You're trying to jump up off the ground. All your effort is to jump off off the ground to grow, 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 grow. That's all all the focuses on that. A bank, it's completely different. Inertia mm-hmm. is actually to grow. If you do nothing, you're actually going to grow. You're gonna like li- you'll like kind of lift off with no gravity and go off and go off into outer space. And that is because there's this thing called so you let's pretend like you're a shoe store, right? You're a shoe right. store and you want to sell a bunch of shoes, what do you do? you, you lower the price but well, even if you lower the price like 10 cents per shoe, you're still limited to how many shoes you can sell. And that's simply because like, look, like even if you have a big house, there's a limit to how many shoe boxes you can fit in that house. There's just, mm-hmm. there's just physical, physical limit. Mm-hmm. Money, it's not the same thing. You lower the interest rate on a loan. You ease up the terms enough on a loan. There's literally an infinite amount of demand for that. Let's so see. You say like, Oh, John, like you want to get a loan? Like we'll, we'll lend you. <laughs> On <laughs> non on a non recourse basis, so you don't actually so you aren't actually personally liable for this money. Well, on a non-recourse basis, money at 0.01% interest rate for as long as you want. How much do you want and how long do you want it? You say, well, like I will literally take an infinite amount of money and I'll take it for an infinite amount of time. Uh-huh. Because like, why wouldn't you do that? I mean, now now you're you talked about generational wealth and that's those clients that, that you serve. Like, there you go. You now to have generational wealth forevermore, right? Just by getting a loan at that rate, right? Well, like, so what that means is that it is incumbent upon the people who run the banks to throttle their own growth. Whereas everybody else running a typical business, it's incumbent upon them not to throttle the growth, but to actually accelerate their growth, right? Mm -hmm. And so that, that, that has a very important, that like knowing, understanding that is very important for understanding banking. So then you think, okay, well, you have that dynamic, but then you have these other peculiar dynamics of banking. One of them is the amount of leverage that banks use. So your typical business will use like they'll leverage up their balance sheet maybe two times, maybe one and a half times, maybe three times. Well, your typical bank will leverage up its balance sheet by 10 times. So they'll borrow $10 for every $1 worth of capital. That is an Mm -hmm. enormous amount of leverage. That leaves very, very little margin for error. Because if that the value of your assets decreases by 10%, just 10%, which happens all the time in the cycles that we experience. You're totally wiped out. You're totally insolvent, right? Well, and it's not, but you know, so you look at that and you're like, well, that's, that, that makes it really fragile. But then you take into into account fractional reserve banking. And then you <laughs> realize how fragile it totally, truly is. So you have a bank that has like, let's say a hundred million dollars in deposits. Does it keep a hundred million dollars in cash just sitting there? Like, so then no. waiting for me or you to come in and and, and, <laughs> and withdraw money? <laughs> no, it takes, it'll take 90 million of that Right. And make a loan from it, make loans from it. Right. So that means that it's sitting on 10, only $10 million in cash. Right. And so you have $10 million in cash and you have $100 million in deposits. So as soon as people say here that this bank's in trouble, they're going to rush to try to get that $10 million. Right. That, that is available for them. And so like it just, even just a, the, a rumor of a bank being in trouble because of that fractional reserve dynamic. Causes banks to be even more fragile than they are because of leverage, and so this and that's why, like you know, when we saw Silicon Valley Bank would go down, First Republic Bank go down, Signature Bank go down, why did they go down? Well, they went down because there were people who were concerned about it. But when they were concerned about it, they rushed to get their money out. So They pulled one hundred two billion dollars out of First Republic. They pulled I can't remember. I well, I, don't know, I don't I don't remember seventy billion dollars or whatever it was out of Silicon Valley. And when that money comes out, it causes a bank to go called liquidity insolvent. So it basically turns the bank upside down.
1: So let's, let's talk about that. You call it the, the silly valley panic of 2023. What happened?
0: So you had, uh, okay. So now we can connect to, to the things that we we're talking about. So we had the novel liquidity surge as a result of the coronavirus crisis, right? Right. So the government shuts down, everything shuts down in March, 2020. We have uh, on, a, on an annualized basis, GDP falls by 30% which is a, gr- a larger annualized decline in GDP than we've ever experienced ever before, M- even much larger than the Great Depression. So the government is sitting there thinking like, oh my God, this is going to be a complete catastrophe. So what do they do? They flood in a bunch of fiscal re- fiscal relief. They flood in a bunch of monetary relief to offset that. Well, that novel liquidity surge. So then you have all this cash come in. You say, well, like, where that where's that cash going to go? right? And so that cash goes to a variety of different places. But on the, on the tip of the spear of that little novel liquidity surge are technology companies, VC firms, companies like that, companies where people are making really speculative investments. And who of all the banks in this country services those, those customers? Silicon Valley Bank. So it has, so it goes into 20, at the end of 2019, it has $60 billion in deposits. Within 18 months, its deposits have gone up to $190 billion. So it's got $130 billion in excess cash. And they're sitting there thinking like, what the hell are we going to do with all this money? They said, well, we can't make loans because like, we don't have the demand for that many loans. They said, well, what about if we go and we buy, let's do something safe with this. Let's The safest thing that we can think about. Let's go and buy government bonds with this, all this money. Like what's wrong with that, right? Well, the problem is they go out and they buy government bonds, but they buy not short dated bonds. You can buy like a month, bond, you know, one that's for a month and one that's six months, ones for a year. They buy mortgage-backed securities that are guaranteed by the government and then just long dated U.S. treasuries. And so these things are going out like three years, five years, seven years. Well, the problem is they're doing that at, when interest rates are at the, at, in, at the absolute minimum, right? Mm-hmm. So that puts them into the situation where if interest rates go up, the price of those bonds goes way down. And that's exactly what happens. They buy all these bonds when interest rates are basically zero. The Federal Reserve comes in and then jacks up interest rates, 500 basis points. That causes the value of those bonds to fall. So then if you look at Silicon Valley's balance sheet, you think like, oh my God, this thing is insolvent. This thing is totally insolvent because the value of these bonds have have dropped that far. They've eaten up all its capital. Well, in accounting and banking, you actually don't have to do that because you can just hold those until they mature and then just get the par value for them. But mm-hmm. the psychology with the investment, with the, the depositors at that bank are saying like, Oh my God, like, what if they aren't going to be able to realize par value on those things? So they rush in and they pull all of their money out. That caused, that caused Silicon Valley Bank to fail. Signature Bank experiences the same thing. First Republic Bank experiences the same thing after that. So these are people looking at the balance sheets of these, of these banks. They're saying, we don't care that bank, bank accounting laws or bank accounting rules allow you to hold these till maturity and then realize 100% on the, you know, 100% on the dollar for these things. We don't care about that. Like we're worried the balance sheet right now looks like it's underwater. We're going to go get all our money out. They pull it all out. And those things go, those things go broke.
1: Why haven't we seen more banks fail the same way? I'm guessing that they're not the only ones that are caught in this position.
0: They are not the only ones that are caught like that, but they were, but no other really a Silicon Valley bank is, is, is that to to understand everything that happened is Silicon Valley bank is the most important mm-hmm. and Silicon Valley bank. While other banks saw a surge in deposits, they saw like their deposits go 20% or 30%. No other banks saw their deposits increase by that amount. So no other banks had so much to invest in these long dated bonds. And so these, yes, all the other banks on, on a continuum, all, you know, all the other banks did have this issue, but it was like, they had 2% of the issue, whereas Silicon Valley Bank had 95% of the issue. So it was just the most exposed. And then First Republic fell because there's a lot of similarities between the two banks, the two customer bases. Signature Bank fell because it had exposure to cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency was one of the other areas where all this, this liquidity surged into. And, and quite frankly, Signature Bank just hasn't been a, a well read bank for a long time. And even more importantly, they had horrible, horrible relationships with the regulators. And regulators are the ones who make the decisions on whether a bank fails or not. So those, those, those—that's the reason that those three banks failed. The reason that others didn't fail after that was because the federal, because the FDIC and the Federal Reserve kind of the response to all this came in and basically said, like, look, like you you don't have to worry about other banks and and uninsured deposits. Like, we'll we'll back those up.
1: So I like that you you separated two sides: the searching deposits, and then how that money was invested. The long dated, even if it's government paper, when the interest rates go from zero to five in a matter of months it's hard to be smart unless you're only in very, very short-term paper. So looking at the other side of the equation, there might be other banks that also have that kind of a hole in their balance sheet where they have long-term dated paper that if you had to take the losses now, they would be substantial losses that look like paper losses for now, but if they were forced to, they would have to realize substantial losses. How does that look? Because that's more of a broad-reaching kind of aspect of... for all the banks.
0: So how does it look in terms of like, are there others that have the same issue or?
1: That's right. Yeah. Are there others that have a, a big hole that hasn't been you know, recognized, realized?
0: Yeah. Yeah. There there are There are plenty of other banks that, that have that problem, not to the same extent as Silicon Valley, but, but yeah, there are other banks that have that issue.
1: But it's not as pressing and it's not as big of a concern as it was for Silicon Valley. That's what I'm hearing.
0: Well, I mean, like it wasn't even a concern to Silicon Valley. That was just the madness of the crowds, right? I mean, like Silicon Valley could have sat in that portfolio until it matured and they could have gotten a hundred cents on their dollar for that. It, that was just the madness of the crowd. And so like, you know, I, I do a lot of podcasts and, and get a lot, asked these questions a lot. And like a lot of times I'll be like, well, what other banks are having problems? Well, it's like, why would I, you, you, like no responsible person who does what I do would ever answer that question because yeah. these banks are fine. All of the banks are perfectly fine. All you're doing by answering that question is feeding the madness of the crowd. That's all you're doing. Yeah. Because these banks, if, it, it, it's like a, it, what, if a tree falls in a forest and no one's around, like, does it make a sound? I, I don't know. Maybe not. You <laughs> know what I
1: mean? It's, just, it's, it's just
0: the same thing here. If I go around like talk pretending like, like making the sound of a tree falling, like that's not going to do, that's not going to do anybody any good, if that makes sense.
1: No, no. I- I think it's it's a very sensible way of looking at it. And I think what you emphasize is the confidence. And the confidence, it's easier to lose it when we can transmit information at a speed that we couldn't before. If you had a local bank fail in 1931, or the banks that I've seen fail as a kid in Poland in the 90s, the the reach and how quickly the information would spread is nothing like what's happening today. It's it's on social media. There are pictures of people in front of the banks. So I think that's a very powerful element of that. You can break the confidence in the bank very very quickly. I think that's that's the difference between today and anything that happened before. I'm not sure if that's now, how you look at it.
0: Now let me let me provide provide a counterpoint to that because you yeah. hear a lot about that, like oh the speed at which information travels now is different than ever before. Well, like let's look at history and let's find out if that's true or not. So you go back to 1857. Okay. Mm-hmm. 1857 was a, there's a major, major panic that started in Cincinnati, Ohio when a company by the name of, of the Ohio Life Insurance and Trust Company went, went broke. And it went broke because they had, a, they had an office in New York and their cashier at that office had made some personal speculative bets that had gone wrong. And so what he decided to do is he was going to take the money from this company. And invest it in stock market invest it in securities markets, make up for that, then take that out, and nobody would ever know the difference because this company was known to be incredibly incredibly conservative. and like the widows and orphans put their money in this thing. the state puts the states put their money in this thing is one of the biggest, most respected organ, financial institutions in the entire United States at the time. Word gets out, they get a telegram from the New York office to the Cincinnati office. that telegram says, we're going to suspend payment. So that means, like, a depositor comes in to get to withdraw money, they're going to say, "No depositor, you cannot have your money." So we're suspending payment for this reason. We have this, there's this stuff going on. We got to try to figure out. Well, what happens then in all the other cities around major cities around the country? Well, here's what happened. 13 years before, in 1844, was the first telegraphic message. What hath God? What hath God wrought? That was the first message. And I think it went from, I think Washington DC to Baltimore, something like mm-hmm. that. And that was the birth of the telegraph. So soon as that telegram came into Cincinnati, then telegrams went out to all the other cities, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Baltimore, New York City, all over the country. And they all, then you saw bank runs experienced in all these different cities all over the country. And so the panic of 1857, this was 100 and what, 50, 160, what, six years ago, was the first modern banking panic because it was the first banking panic when there was modern technology. And so like, Really, it's we've had we've had one hundred and sixty some years of this almost instantaneous passage of information. Uh, for you know these things, was so like really when people say like oh it's that going faster now than ever before. I don't know. I don't it's know. I tar- I'm, I'm not somebody. I, I'm, I like I'm, that. I'm point. not somebody who abides by that. Yeah.
1: No, I I like that point, and I'm always amazed reading books you know, history. About the markets, how information was already flowing. And, you know, at some point there were phone lines and messages going across the Atlantic. So London would know what's happening in New York and coast to coast. So you're right that the people that were in charge of actual trading would know as quickly and as much as you would today. I think the difference is that more people are participating. Even the average deposit that you mentioned at US banks in the 1800s, the $4, now more money and more people have substantial money, not just with banks, but even in equities, even compared to the Great Depression. During the, the Great Depression, actually a small percent of people was invested in the stock market. Today, and I can find a statistic, I don't remember, but it's, it was a very small amount relative to what it is today. Now everybody's retirement, 401k's, everything is in the stock market. So I think it's, it's broad. It's broader. More people are affected by it and more people have more substantial money. With with banks, but you're right that the message with the telegram can reach the decision makers as fast in 1857 as it does today. Yeah, you know, that is
0: an, it, It's an interesting question. You, I bet you're right. I suspect you're right, but I bet the magnitude is not as large as as, as one would think. Here's why I say that: the Civil War is when mm-hmm. bonds were first marketed to the general public by a guy mm-hmm. named Co- by a guy named Jay Cook. But then it was in the 1920s, the, t- the early 1900s, or so like 19 to ni- 1900 to like the end of the 1920s. That's when all of these banks started these basically retail brokerage companies, but they didn't call them retail brokerage companies. They called them securities affiliates. And so th- what these did is they took because then in World War One bonds again were marketed across the country to your retail investors these war mm-hmm. bonds, and then so then these, these securities affiliates came. And they use those distribution channels that were built out to market those bonds in World War One to the market securities to just your mom and pops all across the United States. So those two periods really were the birth of kind of your retail investor in the United States. And, and I can't, I don't know what the, the percentages were, but my guess is that the percentages by the 1920s were actually pretty substantial in terms of the, the retail investor investing in in, in in stock market.
1: For me, the big takeaway from what we just talked about is what you mentioned that. Even the vulnerable banks had they held and effectively they will continue to hold this paper long-term paper until it matures, they will get a par one hundred percent back. I think that's important to know.
0: Here's a big and here's a here's an even bigger broader takeaway. Nothing is new.
1: That's true. Nothing.
0: (laughs) Nothing is new. Things are not going faster. In fact, they're probably going slower than ever before in terms of change. Uh Everything that's happened now has happened before. In the Silicon Valley Bank, you look at that. You think that's an unusual thing. Has that ever happened before? Yes, happened uh-huh. in the eighteen thirties. Almost the exact same thing. Everything that has happened today, you can look back at history and find precedent for it. And that mm-hmm. matters because, like, if you're a trader, you look back. A guy named Mark Lynch. So Mark Lynch and a guy named Nick Adams built Wellington Cap, built Wellington Management up from like eighty million in capital in, in assets under management to I don't know something like six hundred billion. And they became the largest active allocators in the banking space in the United States. They may still be, I think they're, I'm not sure, they're either one or two now, but Mark retired in 2019. So you go to Mark's house outside of Philadelphia, and you walk in, he's got this large room, this large, beautiful room, they call it the great room. What's in that room? It's a huge library. It's a humongous library. This is one of the most powerful and important people in the banking industry in the United States over the past 30 years. And what mm-hmm. does this guy do? What does this guy spend his time doing? Reading history, reading history. Reading history. <laughs> and, and then you say, well, and then you ask him questions like, like does, does reading all that history, does that, does that translate into making in, into your success as an investor? The answer to that is yes. Absolutely. So what you'll find is that you go around, around, you know, and people say, well, why do you read so much history? Why does history matter? History doesn't matter. Everything is different now. These are clowns. People who say that don't know what they're talking about. The, the fact of the matter is. The more history you know, the, the the better you're able to respond to these things that happen in the market because nothing is new.
1: Well, I think the one thing in common that the past has with today, and I think Ben Graham, the famous value investor, said that everything changes, but it's the humans that are running the show. And I'm paraphrasing what he said, but basically that's the idea. It was humans causing the panic back in the 1800s, and it's humans causing the panic today. And it will be humans that will cause the next panic in the next 50 years or 100 years. So I think that's that's what we have in common. I'm tempted to ask you about AI, how it fits into the picture. Does it make it worse or better? Or at the end of the day, somebody told me that the quality of questions, the AI cannot ask a question really. It's it's the answer that you get. But the quality of questions, it's up to the human to decide. And the more books you have, like you have a whole wall behind you, the better will be the quality of questions that you can ask. What's your thought on AI?
0: So there are things that people say that have no meaning. AI yeah. is one of those things people talk throw around artificial intelligence. AI this, AI that, AI this, AI that, and then you ask these people, "Well, what is AI? Like, ex- explain to me exactly what it is, exactly what it is, what exactly is it?" If you, they have no clue, right? Well, what, to, like, to what, me- like what, like what, what exactly is AI? What, like, other so, than a concept?
1: So, so let let me. And I think we use AI already in many different ways, all the way through airline ticket pricing to so many different other things. I think we already use it. We might not talk about it. Maybe we talk about it more now. But the way it's being talked about these days, you get an answer to a more complex question than an online search. So an online search would be, find me the cheapest hotel in Madrid. And it will list by that category the hotels in Madrid. You choose which one. I think what AI can do, and, and the, the extent that I experimented with it, it can answer a question that usually a high school student would answer. For example, I was writing an article about people that inherited wealth during the Great Depression, and I was curious how they faced this time where a lot of people were destitute, and they were in a position to inherit some of the largest fortunes of the era. So I was looking for people that came of age in that decade, ranked by... The size of the fortune, and with some description of the source of the fortune. So it's a question I would ask to a junior analyst, or really, you know, a high school or a college graduate. Find me and cross-reference three or four different things, and that's how I see the use for it. So it's it's actually doing assignments that you would have in high school or in college for you in seconds, and it would take me probably a whole weekend to go through books, find names, find fortunes. Find family histories, but this produces the answer within seconds, right? So I think the challenges, and on so many levels, for example, how the education these days and my education was offered to me, memorize dates, names, and places, a lot of it are, are if it was biology terms and notions and so on and so on. Once you have access to something that can give you that, then a higher level of thinking goes in. Why in the world did you ask that question? Why are you curious about people that came of age, inherited largest fortunes during the Great Depression? I'm curious, what have they done? How they operated? How much they lost? I'm curious about the lessons for the families that we work for these days, in this time around. What can we learn from this period, right? So I can explain why I'm asking the question, but I think it goes back to what I mentioned earlier, the quality of the question. Why do you care to know? Just the fact that I will give you the name of all Napoleon's generals, it doesn't mean I'm smart, you know? And I think- Let me, let let me, let me, let me,
0: I think you're you're exactly right. So, so the point about AI is that AI is not not a new thing. It is, it is, it is an incremental change to how we just figured out information before. Let me give you a specific example. I went to law school between 2002 and 2005. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is right at the birth of LexisNexis, not, not long after the birth of LexisNexis and, this, and its competitor called Westlaw. What does right. LexisNexis do? LexisNexis is a precedent aggregator. It takes all these cases that were in these books, puts mm-hmm. them online, right? It yeah. makes it easier to search these cases, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I went to law school, you used, we did a legal writing class. And in a legal writing class, what do you do? You spend your time in the library. You go and you learn how to find the cases in the actual books. You don't right. have to do that anymore. Now it's much faster. You just go to LexisNexis right? Same thing with like Google, right? Like before you had to go around like, and even before, even before Nexus, even before, if you didn't have a law library, right? If you mm-hmm. didn't have a law library, then you had to like go to all these different places to find all this <laughs> different stuff. So law library aggregates it, then after Nexus aggregates it, and then you just add some algorithms and things like that, that just make it easier to pull data from all these different places and put it together, right? Mm-hmm. So you look at ChatGPT. ChatGPT is just like another another layer on top of that. Now, as opposed to just going and you, you saying, okay, LexisNexis, like what are the cases that I need to th- make this determination? You go mm-hmm. to chat GPT and you say like, here's the legal question. What is the answer? Right. And it goes out and it kind of like adds that additional layer where it says like, okay, here are all the legal cases and here, here's what all the legal cases mean. Right. Mm-hmm. So that yeah, I mean, AI is like this thing that's very popular. People like to say these words because it makes them feel like fancy, right? And it makes Mm -hmm. them think, think that they're like quote unquote thought leaders. But the fact of the matter is, it's just another, it's just an incremental change on what we've already been doing, right? And so like, yeah, will that make a difference? Yeah. Does Lexus Nexus make a difference? Yeah. Lexus Nexus makes a huge difference because like nobody's buying the actual physical books anymore. Right. So those guys get those middlemen get cut out. Like, does chat GPT and other AI type of things? Does that make a difference? Yes, it makes a difference, but it's like, we're not talking like machines aren't going to take over the planet earth. You know what I mean? This is just an incremental change that's going to cut out some middlemen, make it a more efficient process to your point.
1: You know, early in my career, I was looking into. And I've been in the business 18 years, so it's, it's it's long enough to... I've seen a lot of change in how things are done. I remember my first visit to the New York Stock Exchange, and there were still the last of floor traders with the paper That's tickets. Perfect. And actually, they gave me the paper ticket buy, sell, bought, salt that I put in a book somewhere. I don't remember which book. I'll find it one day. But I remember talking to one of the senior people I worked with, and I was proposing to test out some software that would give us access to financials, we could screen for things in in a more powerful, quicker way than whatever they were using at that time. And he said, why would you need it? When I started, you know, three decades earlier, I had a pencil and a notepad. Can't you work with just that? And I said, I I could, but I'm going to be much slower. I'll look at fewer stocks and somebody else at the other firm has the app or the software and they'll move quicker than me. So I think I see AI as a tool that can make us more efficient, better, and maybe spending time on something that adds more value than just memorizing the names of Napoleon's generals and stuff that can be l- looked up.
0: The other thing I'll say is that AI is it, it's a product of the quality of the information that goes into it.
1: Right. Garbage Absolutely. in, garbage
0: out. Mm-hmm. Garbage in, garbage out. Like You go and you, you can look up all sorts of stuff and get an answer mm-hmm. that is not factually accurate. All sorts mm-hmm. of stuff on chat GPT and find mm-hmm. inaccuracies. It, and, and in the presentation, you think like, Oh, it reads well and makes sense, it's logical, but like it's actually totally garbage. And so, the question is, like, if you're a trader, mm-hmm. if you are somebody who's serious at whatever academic discipline or, or whatever just dis- business discipline, what matters is truth. The closer mm-hmm. you can approximate the truth, that's what it is with trading. The closer you can approximate the truth than somebody else, and the mm-hmm. faster you can approximate that truth, that's where the, all the money is. And that's mm-hmm. what it is in every That's what it is in banking. That's what it is in retail. That's what it is in everything. The closer you can approximate the truth, the better you will do. Assuming you have the, the, the portfolio of other require, uh, of, of other qualities that, 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 that demand success. And so, yes, in one respect, AI makes it easier to get closer to the truth. But in other respects, it actually masks, it actually makes it harder to get to the truth because it masks what the truth is. And so mm-hmm. there will still be the people with that, where the, where the real value is added, which is the same thing right now. And it'll be the same thing under a- AI is that the true, the people who truly are able to discover and approximate more closely than others, the tree. And, and, and chat GPT and, and other AI type of products may or may not help that. In some ways, they will. In some ways, they, w- they won't.
1: You know, I, I did a lot of research when I was at different universities and we would source things from the original. And, one of the apps that we were using for you know, financial analysis it would allow me to click through and see the actual filing. And when something felt off to my human eye, I wanted to click through and see why this number looks strange. And a human can make a judgment. To a computer, one or 10,000, it's just a number. To a human, in some context, that 10,000 makes no sense, right? A human will say, this makes no sense. I don't know what the correct answer is, but 10,000 makes no sense. So I think the beauty of AI, if it goes in that direction, would be so I can click through and see the source of the information, which are a book, legal book, or an encyclopedia that you sourced it from, show me the source so that I can see and not be wrong and say a silly thing about you know, Napoleon's battle or a you know, financial statement or the health of a particular bank. John, I'm curious about something that you, you write about, the, the challenges to conventional wisdom when it comes to banking. There's some counterintuitive truths that you talk about. Can we go over those real quick so that people have a better idea of how, how to look properly at this whole industry?
0: Uh yeah, so I mean there's there's a variety of there's there's a number of these kind of counterintuitive truths, but let me start with one easy one and then I'll I'll parlay that into something else that that your your comment about Napoleon kind of brought to mind. The first <laughs> is that and you kind of Mentioned this earlier. There's this idea in banking that capital is king. Capital is king. Capital is king. Capital is king, king, right? Like the more Mm -hmm. capital bank has, the safer that that the bank, the bank is. And you see analysts all the time. They're saying like looking at how much capital bank has in good times. And what you find is that, for example, Silicon Valley Bank, Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley Bank had more capital than M&T bank. Mm -hmm. It had more capital than Bank of America. On, mm-hmm. on, on, on a relative basis, relative to the size of its balance sheet, yeah, it failed. You look at Washington Mutual. Washington Mutual is the biggest bank failure in the history of the United States. It went down in, in September of 2008, I think a week or two after Lehman Levy Brothers went down. You put it on a bar chart. You you put Washington Mutual on a bar chart with J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo. You say, who had the most capital at that time? Well, Washington Mutual had the most capital at that time. The point being is that capital is not king. Capital, in fact, is what I refer to as a court jester, it's kind of off on the side, like dancing, doing ridiculous things, like distracting you from what really matters. And what really matters is confidence. And that Mm -hmm. goes back to this idea of fractional reserve banking. Like Mm -hmm. as soon as that confidence bubble pops, people are going to run and get their money. Doesn't matter how much capital you have. And the flip side of that is that like, if you're making bad loans, when you're leveraged 10 to one, it doesn't take very many bad loans to eat up all that capital. And you don't know if the loans are bad until the cycle, until the cycle corrects. And so, mm-hmm. like, you're sitting there, like, you, you can say all you want about how much capital this bank has, or that bank has, or like, you know, like the, the not performing loan ratio, this bank is reporting right now. This bank is reporting right now. You don't know the answer until shit hits the fan. And when shit hits the fan, the only thing that matters is confidence. And so, confidence in banking is truly the thing that is king. And so, that's one of those kind of counterintuitive things that continues to prevail in the banking industry to today. Let me tell you even a more important thing that if, if, so if you're, if your customers are multi, you know, are people who have multi-generational wealth and what they're right. trying to do is they're trying to multiply that multi-generational wealth, increase the number of generations that have access to that wealth or to increase the, the amount of wealth that the next generation has. Well, what, what's the one thing you want to grab hold of that is your most powerful ally? It's the law of compounding returns, law of compounding returns. And there are no, there's no better type of institution that compounds than banks. Banks are, it's, these are just pure compounding machines. It's money on top of, <laughs> money, on top of <laughs> money, on top of money, on top of money, on top of money. There's nothing in between. There's no products in between. You got to like the de- de- parlay the money through. It's just money on money, on money, on money, on money, on money, on money. And so your typical yeah. bank that and this is what's beautiful about banks from an investing perspective. That's why my family's invested in them for four generations. So I'm more than half of my, my wife's balance sheet is invested in a private bank. And then another 20 or 30% is invested in a publicly traded banks. It's because your typical bank, you don't have to be Albert Einstein and you can earn 12% on your equity every damn year, every year. Bang, 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 <laughs> bang, 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 bang 12%, 12%, 12%, 12%, good times, bad times, good times, bad times. If you're doing, but as long as if you're not doing stupid stuff, well, you're compounding at 12% a year. That's pretty damn good. What's the S&P return on average? Like what, eight or 9% a year? So you're compounding at 12% a year. So you're doubling your money based on the rule of 72, but every six years, okay? Mm-hmm. You're doubling your money every six years. That is really, really Really good. Well, in order to do that, you, the people leading that thing, they have to make the right decisions. And most importantly, they have to make the right decisions in good times when everything else looks great, when there doesn't seem to be any risk when all the other banks are growing like gangbusters, because again, there's infinite demand, right? So, so everybody else is like, oh, well, let's just like, you know, make all these loans. Everything looks great and doesn't seem to be any risk, right? Well, your good banks, they sit, sit around and say like, at good times, they say like, oh God, like this is going to, this is not going to turn out well. And and those are the people who say like your analysts get on the calls to them. They're saying grow faster. You need to grow faster because all your competitors are growing faster. Your employees are coming to your office and they're saying, you need. we're not, our bonuses aren't as big as our competitors bonuses because they're growing faster and they're making more loans. You're not letting us make all these loans. Your your shareholders are saying the same thing. Well, their stock is going to faster than our stock because like they're growing faster. Like you need to grow faster. You need a CEO that says, screw that. I don't care. Like, I, this is in these times is when banks make the mistakes that cause them to fail. So we're just going to be happy with our 12 or 13% return on equity. Yeah. Some of our, some of our competitors are making 18, 18, <laughs> 18% on, on their equity, but we're going to be content with 12%. We're just going to do that every single year. So then you dig into that and you say like, what is the thing that allows a CEO to do that? To say mm-hmm. no when everybody else is saying yes. And it, you, you have to find somebody who is committed to the fiduciary duty. They mm-hmm. have got to be committed to the fiduciary duty against self-dealing. And that, that means that you are taking, and I think you mentioned this earlier, you're stepping into the role, you, you're putting your company ahead of yourself, right? right. Putting mm-hmm. your, your company ahead of yourself. And you look at the great bankers and the, like all the great bankers did this. APG Nini mm-hmm. did it. Mick Lodnick did it. JP Morgan did it. Mick, Robert Wilmers did all the top performing bankers. All the top performing bankers, that is the one thing that they share. If they took their fiduciary duty and self-dealing seriously. So then you say, well, what is the quality that allows you to take that, that fiduciary duty seriously and allows you to say, like, I don't care what you say, analysts. I don't care what you say, employees. I don't care what you say, shareholders. Like, mm-hmm. we, We're going to hold the line and do the right thing. It is a presence or absence of tragedy and hardship and typically early on in their life that allows them to hold the line on that. And so like you have all these analysts out there looking at building these models, these banks, look at the net interest margin, all their efficiency ratio, all these things. Yeah, you have to understand all those things. But fundamentally, the thing that's going to drive your long-term returns at a bank is the ability of bankers to say no. And to determine if that banker has the ability to say no when you need them to say no, you've got to look into their their their, their personal histories.
1: So the one thing with compounding, you don't want to have what I would call game overs you can't have an interruption where your equity gets wiped out. And you touched on something I want to explore it a little bit more. You said hardship. You're talking about the, the management or the founders or the people that are running the bank. Can you talk more about it? It I think it reshapes their risk awareness for their lifetime. And I've seen it so many times with so many individuals I've met in the investment world and on many fronts.
0: So Lonick ran Glacier Bancorp for 2000 and. From 1998 until 2016. Of, and there's a guy by the name, of Robert Wilmers, who ran M&T Bank from 1983 until he passed away in 2017. If you look at those, and they they produced more all time total shareholder return than anybody. And like, not even nobody was even close. I mean, like mm-hmm. they're like, I hate, I like this analogy, but I hate this analogy. You'll see why. Cause they're like the twin towers of banking, mm-hmm. but they never came down. They, they, they mm-hmm. were that when you look at the, the, the southern, the skyline of the southern Manhattan. As like yep. the, the southern tip of Manhattan, like when the, when the Twin Towers are there, how they mm-hmm. stuck out that far. That was mm-hmm. like Mick Blodnick and, and Bob Wilmers. And you say like, okay, well, what was, what, what was unusual about Mick Blodnick's life? He grew up so poor in a town mm-hmm. called Anaconda, Montana, that they oftentimes didn't have food in their house. Like literally like they'd open the fridge or like the cabinets, literally like zero food, like not even crumbs, like just, there's just zero food. That's how mm-hmm. poor he grew up. Bob Wilmers, he grew up in, he comes from a family in Eastern Europe, an amazing story. I don't, we don't have time to get into it now, but like Norm, a number of interesting dynamics of tragedies and hardships in, in, in their family at Eastern European Jewish family from Belarus, from, from to a trio of villages along the, I don't know. How do you say, what's the name of that river? D-N-E-I-P-E-R. How do you say that river? D-N-E-P-E-R. So they grew up on, <laughs> on three villages on that river. Okay. Uh-huh. And, mm-hmm. and just this amazing story. Again, uh, time to go into it, but like you look at like what allowed them to make the right decisions. It was the fact that they went through these hardships and tragedies, and they're just they like oh, we don't really care. You look at Brent Beardall at Washington Federal. One of so they rank seventh in terms of uh, among all banks, all publicly traded banks, with all time total shareholder returns. Mm-hmm. What a Brent! What a Brent Beardall do when he was 15 years old. He had to carry his father's lifeless body to the car, then rush off to the hospital. His father never gained consciousness and died a week later. You look at Richard Davis. Richard Davis was the guy who ran U.S. Bank from 2006 until 2016 or 2000. Yeah, 2016. Like Mm -hmm. he was the guy. It was under Richard Davis. And because of decisions that he made, you could tie directly to Richard Davis that U.S. Bank Corps emerged from the financial crisis with the highest credit rating of every bank in the United States. Richard Davis. What happened? What happened to him early in life? His, he and his wife and his family leave their family's, his parents' house the night before Thanksgiving. His dad is killed like minutes later. Like it's a tragedy that that has lived with him ever since. That's shaped the way that he became a leader. I mean, you can just go down like bang, 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 bang. All the great leaders, and you Mm -hmm. find this thing hidden in their personal life. There are exceptions. Jamie Diamond is an exception. As far as I know, he didn't he, he never experienced in sort of acute tragedy or hardship. But Jamie Dimon is he's he's a true savant. He's a prodigy at what he does. And the thing that differentiated him from all the different from all the others is that his dad was an executive vice president of American Express at the same time as Sandy Weil was. And Jamie Diamond knew Sandy Weil all all these years. He then gets out of Harvard Business School, goes to work immediately for Sandy Weil. Fannie Wilde is one of the greatest empire builders in the United States, in corporate America, in all of time. He ends up taking this small consumer credit company based in Baltimore, builds it into what, what became the largest bank in the entire world, Citigroup. The fact that he was able to do that is, it was, was absolutely remarkable. And Jamie Jimo was there for the whole thing.
1: That's all remarkable. Some of the families we work with have roots in some old you know, ba- banking operations back in Europe a long time ago and the trouble with banking is not just the game over of a bank but also the underlying system of the country us has a unique situation of a pretty much uninterrupted you know history economically for the last you know 200 some years in europe there were other upheavals that destroyed banks for various reasons so staying with those banks would have been disastrous to a lot of family fortunes but that's a topic for another podcast I just wanted to mention that some people might remember that Buffett is famous for his insurance investments, but he also owned quite a few banks, and he had to divest from some of the banks because of his insurance holdings. But who knows if Berkshire wouldn't be a bank if he had gone that route as a compounding business. The only, well, there are many differences, but one of the differences is that you can have a bank run. The insurance business is not as exposed to something of a bank run nature because people cannot take the money out unless they have a reason and you have to be paid on the policy. But there's, there are other risks to take into account when you're running an insurance business. I think some people learn that insurance business is not as easy and simple as Buffett sometimes makes it sound, <laughs> but that's also a, for another episode. John, one last question before I let you go. I love asking my guests about their definition of success. I'm curious to hear yours if you indulge me. How do you think about success in, in life, in business, in any, everything that you do?
0: Oh, uh, that's a good question. Actually, I should never actually thought about this. So I'll just give you my, Give my contemporary thoughts on it. So I'll give contemporaneous thoughts on it. For me, it's the way that I would put that in this is that like we, we all, we have one life. Each of us has one life and we don't know how long it's going to last. And we're just like these like parasites on this rock that's flying through space. And the question is (laughs) like, what is the purpose of this whole thing? Uh And to me, I think, I think the purpose is the continuation of our species to to contribute to the continuation of our species. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think that's, I think that's the purpose of human life. And so you say like, you know, there's all these different ways that we can contribute to the continuation of our species. One of them is to decrease warfare, right? Warfare is very detrimental to the continuation of our species. One of them is to take care of this planet, mm-hmm. right? We don't know how long we have on this planet, but we know that eventually it could be millions of years. I don't, we don't know, maybe hundreds, of thousands of years. Maybe and and Android will hit it, like and, you know, or a huge meteor will hit it, and then like what will happen to us? Will happen to the dinosaurs? And so mm-hmm. maybe it's like doing what Elon Musk is doing and trying to like get us out to another planet where we can. There's, there's we have a kind of a safety base where we can go off if we have to go there. You know what I mean? But so in my case, the way I kind of fit into the whole equation is that like I think leadership is 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 a big part of of the continuation, you know, maximizing the continuation of our species. And being a good leader, doing ethical things, doing the right things for for the other people, for the planet Earth, for your business community, I think that kind of thing makes a huge difference in terms of of of, of the continuation of our species. And so one of the things that I try to do is I go out and I find the absolute best leaders in one of the most important industries in, 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 in the U S economy. And I get to know them. I get to know their friends. I get to know their family members. I get to know these people extremely, extremely well. And I set these people up as prototypes of how to live a life. Because one of the things I found is that if you want to do well, you have to do good. And that's mm-hmm. just, it's just a hard and fast rule that I have found. And so I spend my life trying to kind of promote Kind of per- trying to promote that message.
1: I love that. I, I write articles every, every week. During COVID, I was writing every week. And one of the articles that got shared the most and I got the most response about, I called it return on kindness. I came back from Berkshire's meeting and I was collecting my thoughts. And I thought in this environment where everybody's so competitive at Berkshire's meeting, there's so much kindness from fellow investors and, and old friends and new friends and, and Buffett and Munger themselves. It's, it's all about sharing. And I thought that if the whole world was just a little bit kinder, I think it would be a nicer place to live. And I think just today I saw on LinkedIn, somebody wrote something about kindness that I reposted. I think in one word, we're sharing one little planet. Let's be kinder to ourselves. I was going to tell you, do you know the book Ergodicity by Luca Delana? Do you know Luca Delana? Have you heard of him? No, I'll, I'll, but I'll, order I'll, it. S- yeah, I'll send you a link. He He was a guest on the podcast. It talks about so many things we talked about today, nothing to do with banking, but more about no, not having game overs in any pursuit in life or attempting not to have, minimizing those. He has an interesting concept about maximizing or optimizing life where you would be happy with it if it lasted a day, you would be happy with it if you were here for 50 years. And I think even running businesses, there are certain decisions that make sense if you just run this business for two years and you walk away with stock-based comp and, and all all the benefits. Or if you're actually there for 50 years, right? Like what kind of decisions you would make. And there are more ideas that he shares, but I'll send you his his name and the book and the, the link. I think you would enjoy it. And I think it touches on some of the topics and some of the big, big ideas that we talked about today.
0: Yeah, please send that. Let, let me finish with one thought. And this kind of goes back to the beginning of... So literally, my, my father just passed away. He's a very successful man, ran a very large business that he built himself. And I was... In Colorado, which is where my parents retired and for the past two weeks, because we knew my dad's health was failing and, and I wanted to be there at the very end with him. And so did my siblings. And I was literally there at the deathbed, at his deathbed. We, he was in the hospital. We brought him home so he was more comfortable so he could, he, so he could die at home. And at that moment when he died, he had his, my little brother was there. I was there. My, my sister was there. My mom, we we're all right there at the bed. And I, and I remember thinking, and I've had this thought ever since that, like, yeah, he made a lot of money. He was an impressive man, an aggressive man, impressive man, built a big business. But when at that moment in life and, and all of us, truth, the fact of the matter is we're all going to die. And it's at that moment of death, when you pass from living to the dead, that's what matters most. What happens in that moment? Who is there for you in that exact moment? And we were all there for my father. And it wasn't because he made a lot of money. It was because he was a good guy. And so we all have that looking to, to look to look forward to, and we want you want to make the right decisions. So when you pass, you, the people that, that you care about are there for you, and and uh, and that matters. It matters more who you are than how much you make.
1: John, this was a very special episode. I really appreciate you joining me today, and I think this message—it's a beautiful message—and I hope it, it spreads and people get to think and see the world through your eyes and your experience. So I, I really appreciate you today thank you so much appreciate it very much thanks for having me you were listening to talking billions we talk about big ideas big inspirations big topics we take on the hardest subject of all money but our conversations lead us to an even bigger question what it means to live a rich life beyond money if you enjoyed the show please take a moment and follow subscribe rate and share with friends and family We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogomil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only. And so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov.